You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. We're focusing specifically on the African crested porcupine. The African cape porcupine is, is a close, close relative. What can they teach us? Properties and uh, fatty acids that are coating the quills actually aid the porcupine itself in case it gets suffered from self-injury. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. I'm so excited you're back. I know we did alligators, but we're easing you back in. It's just exciting to get back in the saddle. It is. It is. And this week is we're going to have a lot of fun. I spent several hours uh, late at Mm -hmm. night when the baby was up. I'm like, why not learn more about porcupines? I know this one. Like I've been wanting to do this one for a couple of years. Like you know, it's well, amazing, it, creature. It, Chris, it really is. But I must say, this one kind of slipped my radar, and mm-hmm. I don't know why. I think we have porcupines in North America. I've never seen one in the wild. Uh, they used to have them at the children's zoo where I worked in Chicago, but I was never a keeper for porcupines. And now after studying them this week, I realized that I was missing out. Mm -hmm. And we've covered a lot of rodents on this podcast. And porcupines are in the rodent family, which Chris will go over when we get to evolution and species. But we haven't talked about any that have quills. Mm-hmm. Any animals, like, and that's what I was realizing. Right. We haven't done hedgehogs, right? Uh, Tinrex, echidnas. So I, I guess, yeah. And once, and Chris will talk about how they may or may not be related to, to porcupines. But yeah, I just realized we have ignored things with spiky quills, and that seems somewhat shameful. So. <laughs> I- <laughs> we got to save some good ones. I know, I know. I, know. I just uh, so I had a lot of fun this week, and I think that'll come off uh, in the podcast. Even though, yes, I'm probably am a little tired than normal, but uh, the baby is seven weeks old today, and he's doing fantastic. We love him. His brothers love mm-hmm. him, and it's just adding so much light to our lives. And yeah, and then of course I can read things late at night when everybody else is sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> right, get some get some time yeah, to, no, to, to get your stuff done. I, he, the baby's a But overall, so far, John and I are really spoiled. We are getting more sleep than we remember getting with our other kids. So mm-hmm. uh, all is good. That's good. It is good. And yeah, we're, it's, we're focusing specifically on the African crested porcupine. The African cape porcupine is, is a close, close relative. But And then we'll talk a little bit about the North American, where they fit in. Because we did have a special guest a few weeks ago talking about the North American porcupines, right? Wasn't that Pax? 
Yeah, Chris, that was Pax. He was one of my my kid interviews, and he helped inspire me to want to learn more about porcupines in general. And that's when I realized this is what we're doing. So thank you, Pax. If And if you haven't checked out my interview with Pax, please do. It's a lot of fun. He's a very, very knowledgeable young researcher, that's for sure. Yeah. He is, he is. And if you go to our website, you know, Dan's been doing a great job on that. And uh, it's up and actually embedded is Pax's YouTube channel. So you can watch some of the stuff that, that he talks about there, about animals. And so talking about porcupines, one of the things that I thought was funny kept going up on all, on all the research is in Latin, it means quill pig, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And my question, Angie... <laughs> It's because we are reproductive physiologists is a, how in the heck do they breed and how in the heck does she give birth to little (laughs) prickly babies with quills? Chris, that's why we're podcast partners because those are my two of my really big questions. And then I dorked out on quills, but yes, that is exactly what I was thinking. I gave birth not too long ago. (laughs) And so I, yes, yes. When I was reading about how some of them are 12 inches and things like this as adults, uh, some of the quills are, I I just like, holy macaroni. So we will definitely be dissecting that later on in the podcast for sure. Uh, And (laughs) I can't wait. Let's let's hurry up. Let's hurry up because I'm excited to learn about that. Uh, Speaking about the website, it it is coming along, you know, Dan and, and all of us have been really busy. Uh, but we are still working on it. It's looking great. We have it broken down now by species. We're going to try to get a search option. But this week, Olivia joined us on Patreon. Thank you. Again, you know, one good cup of coffee a month. You support us uh, and what we're doing in our messaging. And, you know, like this week, I'm doing a fundraiser with LA Zoo with some big celebrities. I'm like, wow. I'm like, I wow. saw that lineup. I'm like, that's hot, hot, hot smoking. <laughs> yeah, I know. Love Jordan, mm-hmm. Jungle Jordan, Mike Veal, oh, one of my heroes, Rick Schwartz, and little old me, uh, and a few other, John Cleese from Monty Python fame. So, that's this week uh, supporting LA Zoo and their zookeepers. But, you know, thank you for supporting Angie and I. I'm shooting videos down here in New Zealand. I've got some special stuff just for our Patreon listeners coming. And Angie's going to be on there now, too, when, when, when I can, when, when I can get some of her time. But thank you so much. And, yes, I'd love to give a big shout out to Christian, who gave us an awesome review on iTunes, saying that we're one of the best animal podcasts around, or actually we are the best. So, Thank you for that glowing review, five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And so that is a way that you can share your love for this podcast and also help us get our numbers boosted and the algorithms to get more exposure, more free education to people, because that's what Chris and I, our primary mission is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, thank you so much for that especially coming up on Earth Day too. This is always an important time of year for exposure and, and people actually thinking about conservation and ecology. Describing a porcupine. Okay. Go. <laughs> it's well, lots of quills. <laughs> yeah, spikes, yeah. Uh, quills. And that's in general, but specifically the African crusted porcupine, it's going to have quills all over its body, but they're different sizes and coarseness. And so if we start from the top half, the head, porcupines are rodents, so they have 
adorable heads and small beady eyes and whiskers, of course, or vibrasa. And the head, neck, and shoulders in four legs of the African crested porcupine are going to be covered with dark brown or black bristles that are pretty coarse and not as long. Over the top of the body around the head is where this crest, if you will, comes in. It's not a crest of hair. It's a crest of quills that are predominantly like white grayish in color, almost giving it like a mohawk appearance, don't you think? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, mohawk. Yeah, it's like a mohawk mm-hmm. of quills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if you go to like the middle of their back towards their tail, the quills get much more thicker and they're beautiful. They're basically striped black and white. And then they have really sharp white tips and they're much thicker. In my opinion, they really stand out compared to the one, the quills towards the tops of their head. And what's really cool too about the African crested is that it has a shorter tail, but there's actually quills on the tail. And just a fun behavioral fact is they'll rattle those quills uh, when they're doing a defense behavior. And as these quills rattle or vibrate, they make a hiss-like sound. So it's it's to hopefully ward off the predator, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work. But also when trying to ward off predators is the porcupines make all of these quills stand up. And that's when they that's I think really where the crested comes in because they they just add this amazing like black and white stripe uh, over their head of quills and then their body just poof yeah. is a porcupine right everybody knows a porcupine <laughs> yeah it's, it's amazing like I oh, I can't wait to get to the predator part you know right before we get to behavior because it's just such a great strategy to ward off predators. You just don't want to mess with them. I'm thinking like while you were talking about the quills and stuff, and then I go to skunks, you know, then you have like the most rancid, which we haven't covered yet. We will have to defense mechanism where it is just like the stinkiest thing on earth to ward off predators. And then you have this one with just quills. Like I dare you, I dare you to mess with me, you know, come here. You want some of this? And we'll talk about it later because it is amazing right, how they evolved you- this way. Right, Chris, because when you zoom in on the quills, especially the the banded black and white ones mm-hmm. with the white tips towards their back end, they're sharp. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 18 gauge needle, they said, as sharp as as a hypodermic needle. Like they, they are not dull. You know, <laughs> it's not a dull thing. They, they are very sharp. They are very sharp. You don't want to mess with them. So, uh, and then like Angie said at the beginning, this is the largest porcupine. I mean, anywhere from 23 to 37 inches long or over 90 centimeters long can weigh up to 66 pounds. That blew my kilograms. mind. That I, that I was not <laughs> expecting that. That is big. They're big. They're big. I've seen them at the zoos, you know, it, they're big. Hamilton zoo has them. I, he, he was sleeping in the back. So I have to get Jesse to, to take me back and see him, mm-hmm. you know, maybe do some stuff for social media, but yeah. You know, they, they, they are big, you know, not because North Americans are a little bit smaller. So anyways, fascinating, fascinating creatures. And then for the African crested, really where they range, obviously Africa, but you're looking at North Africa at, at, at the Mediterranean. So parts of Libya and I think uh, Algeria and uh, those parts. 
Then the lower end of West Africa, so Ghana region, over to Tanzania, where they've also been found up on Mount Kilimanjaro. What? You know, as high up as like, yeah, as high as up as almost 11,000 feet or 3,500 meters. That. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they've been ranging all over there. Then this is an interesting factoid. Did you see where else they are outside of Africa? Ah, uh, it's on my bucket list. Italy. Yeah. Italy, Italia. Mm-hmm. Like they think or thought that they were brought back by the Romans, but the geological record there has shown that porcupines have been there before humans. So they were there. <laughs> very cool. Very so cool. cool. So Angie, before we jump into evolution, I, I, I dug in, okay, what, where, where do porcupines fit and the ecosystem? And they call them ecosystem engineers that they do go around and we talk about what they eat, mainly, mainly herbivores. They go around, disturb the soil. So, you know, you're talking about seed distribution always is critical. Yeah, huge. Yeah, and they just alter plant communities. And, you know, they said things like they promote rare and endangered bulbs. So certain plants depend on them or they help certain plant communities. Obviously, they are a prey species. Of course, predators aren't always successful with them but <laughs> they, they they can be preyed upon so they are a source of food for others honey badger so they don't do- care <laughs> where does the honey badger where does the honey badger fit in this ecosystem <laughs> it's the top predator in their mind they are oh they're so great but you know they are important they, they again contributing very important part of the ecosystem, have been there for tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, all getting along. So they they are an important part of that in Africa and around the world. You'll find out porcupines around the world. So looking at where these are specifically, so sub-Sahara deserts, the more arid regions of Africa. The first thing that came to my mind that I've been seeing some things lately in the news is desertification and Alan Savoy, I think was the first one that, that really brought this to my attention years ago. And I've talked about this in our elephant episodes where in Angola desertification was speeding up and he blamed it on the elephants. And so the governments there went and called over 40,000 elephants you know, whole families, everything wiped him out. It was horrific because of his science and him pushing this. Well, once the elephants were removed from the ecosystem, desertification just picked right back up and it, it, or it just, it sped up. And then he realized, oh gosh, what did I do? And he went back. You need to bring the elephants back because the elephants were, were and are a critical part of the ecosystem. You oh know? yeah, those big feet. Yeah, and the grasslands and the mm-hmm. trees and everything they do. Like elephants spread seeds farther than any bird. You know, right. they, they've documented yeah. it. It's like 60 kilometers away or 80 kilometers mm-hmm. away. So elephants are critical to the ecosystem there. So did a little digging and, you know, the UN, some of these top scientists, uh, Luke Ganakata, I think I'm probably butchering his name, but... He said, desertification is the greatest environmental challenge of our time. 
And obviously climate change is making it worse. Specifically, it, it affects around 2 billion people who live in and around deserts and defines desertification as land degradation in arid, semi-arid, and dry subhumid areas resulting from various factors. I'll talk about some of that, you know, human activity and climate, climate change. So I have a really cool map that that I found on there, and it talks about some of the, the desert regions in the world. And really the Sahara is, they call it hyper-arid, so super dry. And then parts of the Arabian Peninsula, and then I think the Gobi Desert, those are the three major ones that are hyper-arid, super, super, super dry. And in the U.S., there isn't any, which was interesting. And even Australia in the outback wasn't. Those are more arid. So these are super dry environments. And I, it makes me go back and think of the fennec fox, like how that little creature survives <laughs> out there is just so amazing. Incredible. Oh, it is. It is. Like that desert is just treacherous. It is really treacherous. And the thing is, it's expanding. It's expanding. Right. Yeah. So I'll talk about that here in a second. So it's temperatures. What we know with, with the climate getting warmer. So land surface, I didn't know this or I, I didn't remember it. Land surface temperatures are rising faster than ocean temperatures. So we know the oceans are a heat sink. We know there's concern there, especially with coral reefs, acidification, those things. So on average, global temperatures have increased 1.1 degrees Celsius from 1970 to 2018. So almost the last 50 years. Land temperatures have increased 1.7 degrees Celsius on average. So it's actually getting hotter on land than the oceans but it's concern everywhere but you know that's where i think in one of our episodes we talked about parts of the world where the daily temperature is going to be over 100 degrees fahrenheit where they don't have ac they don't have a lot of clean water and people are going to be dying and suffering because you hear about heat waves in europe heat waves in the states anywhere in the world and so many people dying because the heat is just too hot for humans to survive in so that's a concern. So what this means for the Sahara. So the Sahara Desert covers 9.5 million square kilometers. That's just, I can't even fathom how big that is. So the lower 48 US, I had to look this up. I always like to compare, is only around 3 million square kilometers. Okay, wow. that's the lower 48. You throw in Alaska, it's like another, it's up to almost nine. So that's basically nine and a half square kilometers, about the size of Canada. And that is the Sahara Desert. That's it is bonkers. Huge. Yeah. It is massive. It is a massive, massive desert. I can't wait to fly over it one day or visit it one day. And so the Sahara Desert southern border, this is the concern, has advanced 100 kilometers in the last 40 years or 62 miles. So... That has the desert has completely taken over a, a, the boundary by 60 miles in most places in the southern portion. So it's advancing, it, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, obviously, through all the changes with climate change, 
it's getting drier. You're seeing more the change in rainfall in certain areas. We talked about this a couple weeks ago as far as the rainforest feedback system. When you cut away the rainforest, you don't get the moisture in the air. So it changes the climate. It directly influences. That's why we're worried about the, I was talking about it, worrying about the Brazilian rainforest. And I was talking about humans becoming extinct, that the Amazon rainforest is a tipping point. Same thing in Africa, Central Africa. All of that deforestation is affecting the tropical forest right there. So anyway, some of the causes is, you know, one of the things obviously is climate change, but also how we use land. So deforestation, like I talked about, overgrazing by livestock, overcultivation of crops, irresponsible use or inappropriate use of fresh water. So again, this is all impacting the soil there because they say like the top 20 centimeters is like what keeps us alive of soil on earth. It has all the nutrients. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the solutions they talked about is obviously global warming is a big one, but also for those areas, they want to go in and educate the people on how to use the land more properly, how to avoid soil erosion, prevent vegetation loss, you know, which is overgrazing, land management. So the peoples there can sustain that and hold back some of this desertification that we're seeing. So yeah, it's a major concern, deserts across the world, but you know, the, I always wanted to bring in the positive. We are aware of it. Scientists are aware of it. Hopefully those governments in the part of the world are aware of it and they're trying to find some of these solutions. But, you know, when you talk about the porcupine or we've talked about it with lions, all the different species that, that live on these edges of these deserts, you know, they're losing that habitat and humans are losing places they can use to farm so they go and destroy more habitat somewhere else. So it is definitely is impacting wildlife, right? So again, another portion of this crisis we find ourselves in that we really need to find solutions for, you know, the next decade. Yes, Chris, you bring up some really important things to think about. I haven't spent too much time in the deserts, but I've ridden through on a bus, uh, a couple deserts in South America, Eastern Patagonia, uh, parts of the Atacama Desert in Chile. And then one of my favorite experiences was not actually in the desert, but it was in Peru uh, riding boats out in the ocean and looking at the lines in the deserts of Nazca. So they're known as Nazca lines. And that's amazing. It's a different story for a different day. It was, it was yeah. it's a rad. I mean, I'm how the lines get there, who made it, yeah. I don't know. Why are they still there? It's just just so incredible. But like I said, for the little amount of time that I've spent there, and I've never done much hiking or camping or anything like that, but I can't imagine these harsh climates expanding especially if it's within our control to be able to stop it or at least slow it down. Right. So, yeah, no. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's like it's definitely something to keep an eye our eye on and let alone yes, the desert are harsh conditions, but there are a lot of species that call home, like you mentioned, yeah. and yeah. on, you know, most most continents. So, 
Uh, we don't want to wipe them out. I mean, in pressure pressure them to keep living in even harsher climates, right? My goodness. Well, yeah, that's, I was just thinking like, we're going to have to cover a desert species soon and, and talk more about this, but I'm thinking the Mojave desert, the Joshua tree, very famous. Yeah. You know. See, I've never been out that way. I, I, I did yeah. most of my, I could, I could really only afford to travel more in South America. I haven't, the States, I still really haven't been out West that much. Yeah. Yeah, you have to get out here. You have to get out, well, out here, out there. I'm in New Zealand. Um, <laughs> I want to get out there as well. Well, yes, <laughs> I know. I'm going to get you down here. No deserts down here. It's over in Australia. Uh, but I, you know, I remember reading about the Joshua trees and they're they're at risk of extinction. And right, which is just crazy. Yeah. That's yeah, we don't want that because the young trees can't survive. It's too hot. The old trees are fine. They're there. They're they're, they're already established, but the younger ones can't get established. So. And they run all the way to the state of Utah, you know, from California through Nevada by Vegas, you know, all the way up. And they think they're going to die off until just a little bit of parts of Utah where they're at elevation. So climate change is affecting everything, everything. All right, back to porcupines. And again, sub-Sahara, so so they, they can do skirt the deserts and everything. It, they are a mammal. We know that they are rodents, as Angie has said. These, remember, Angie, rodents, the reason we cover so many rodents is because 40% of all mammals are rodents. So we always forget that, that, you know, almost half of mammals are, are rodents. They're everywhere, very successful for, for tens of millions of years, you know, all over the planet. And it, and it makes me think about here in New Zealand, how we're trying to get rid of our rodents you know, the islands, the antipodes where rodents get established and they just thrive. They devastate native species, but they thrive and survive. So very successful order of animals. In rodents, there's 33 families, over 400 genre, almost close to 500 genre, and over now nearly 2,300 species. So We've quite got a, bit. a lot of work cut out for us in this family. Yeah, I know. They're fun, though. There's always so, so many So fun. Coolest. That's, oh, gosh, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Rodents are awesome. The family is Hystracidae. This is the old world porcupines. So they stretch from Europe to Asia to Africa. So very, very robust little family, you know, over a wide area. And then the African crested porcupine genre or genus is Hystrix. Mm-hmm. So their scientific name is Hystrix cristata. So very easy. The family Hystrix. So just some of the other porcupines out there. Over in Asia, you have the Malayan and the Sunda porcupines. Then in Africa, you have the Cape porcupine, the crested porcupine. And then in India region, you have the Indian porcupine. Then you have the thick spine porcupine, the Philippine and Sumatran porcupines. Then the African brush-tailed porcupine, the Asiatic brush-tailed porcupine, and then the long-tailed porcupine. So these are all the old world ones. We'll probably at some point do a new world porcupine, you know, uh, in a year or two. Uh, just we'll, we'll make a note. Most are least concerned or unclassified because they haven't done a lot of research on them. But the Philippine porcupine and the bristled spine or brush-tailed, Asiatic brush-tailed porcupine are listed as vulnerable because we'll talk about they are being poached 
So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, a little little fun family, you know, stretched across Asia and Africa. Well, yeah, Chris and I had fun dorking out a little bit about the difference between old world porcupines and the new world porcupines. And besides different characteristic with the quills, different colors, things like that. Uh, in general, the old world porcupines, like the crested that we're talking about today, their quills are embedded in clusters. Whereas the new world porcupines, it's going to be a single quill and around it are going to be under fur, hair, or other bristles before the next quill comes into play. So a little bit different setup with their quills. And then the new world porcupines are also really good climbers and they spend a lot more times in trees. Whereas the old world porcupines are good swimmers. So that's kind of cool behavior. I guess mm-hmm. I never really thought of a porcupine swimming, but they're I know, I know. <laughs> and they get away a- from the raft. Get I know, away from right? the raft. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to pop it. And, yeah. and then the old worlds are a little bit more nocturnal than the new worlds, which I still haven't seen a porcupine. So I'm going to go <laughs> with <laughs> yeah. uh, they're nocturnal where, where I live. Uh, but also the uh, new worlds are. Um, are just in general smaller mm-hmm. in size. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're they're not closely related. That's ah, the thing. Thank you for bringing that yeah. up. That's what yeah. I think is crazy. Yes. Yeah, I know. Convergent evolution with the, with the quills, which we'll talk about here in a second. But yeah, they. I, I think the new worlds. They. I did see one thing where they. I guess some of that rafts of vegetation that deposited animals in South America, that an ancient relative, some point of a rodent, went. To South America, and then eventually the, the the New Worlds evolved. But again, convergent evolution—they they're not closely related. And again, rodents first appeared on the scene like early on, sixty-six million years ago, once the non-avian dinosaurs died out. So them and the Lagomorphs, you know, or bunnies and stuff that have erupted or evolved in Asia once those major dinosaurs died out. Predators competition you know, rodents started to flourish. And then around 50, 55 million years ago is really where they started to diverge, spread around the world into Europe, down into Africa. The The old world porcupines, I dug and dug. There wasn't a ton of stuff, but they believe they started emerging about 20 million years ago in Eurasia. Okay. The, the, the Eurasian. Now, what we do know a little bit, there's a little bit of, now that's old world porcupines today, right? Mm-hmm. So they're most ancient relatives about 20 million years ago. Now, what we do know about the origin of quills, and we'll dork out about this a little bit more in physiology, but they're just modified hairs or elonged hairs that have changed. And the oldest known mammal is Folodersis, or Folodosaurus. Yeah, such big words. Phalodosaurus was like a hedgehog. Okay. Right. About mm-hmm. 40 million years ago. So they had hardened hairs. And they do mention that hairs don't fossilize that well. So they okay. don't know. Mm-hmm. But this is the earliest evidence we have of, of a quill-like animal existing. And then again, the New Worlds evolved it totally independently from the Old World porcupines, which is just... Uh, evolution. It's just, I know. It blows your mind. I know. Yeah, it blows your mind. Well, that's another reason of why sh- why we should care about 
porcupines, uh, especially like you mentioned, some of these species that are vulnerable due to poaching, is because they did this really cool thing to help protect themselves. I mean, quills, I like it's out of a sci-fi movie. And yeah. And and not only did the old world ones do it independently, so did the new world. I mean, that's like what a great idea it is. And I don't know. I just I just really had fun dorking out about their quills uh this week because it I I guess I hadn't really stopped and never thought about it until mm-hmm, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. why you and I do this podcast, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just had so many questions about quills. And of course, Chris, I have like three slides on quill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> quill yeah. anatomy, physiology. Uh but no, no. I'll condense it and you you summarize it really well is for in the porcupine family, their quills are basically large stiff hairs which mean they're made of keratin right like our fingernails uh and these quills or spines have different sizes and forms and colors depending on the species but they really are just a typical hair that's coated with really thick plates of keratin and they're embedded into the musculature of the skin and I couldn't find out the exact answer of how many quills an African crested porcupine has, but it's a pretty well-known fact that the North American porcupine has about 30,000 quills. And each individual quill has a barb on it, but not just one barb, anywhere from like seven to 800 barbs really close to the tip. So within four millimeters of the tip. And what these barbs do is they're kind of like anchors that sink into the skin of a predator if they get close close enough to uh, have that happen. And what these barbs do is they act like anchors. And so when a predator does get close to a porcupine and it ends up with a bar or and it ends up with a quill in it, it's hard for the quill to come out. It's like pulling on it and it doesn't want to give because of no. all these barbs, right? And these barbs are basically like little tiny anchors that are microscopic and they're backward facing barbs. So whenever an animal or a human or whatever tries to remove a porcupine barb, it's really painful because it's anchored in there and hard to get out. And most porcupines have a mix of these bigger, sharper, thicker quills, but also with some soft hair and mixed quills that are not as, I guess, powerful, if you will. Uh, But what's going to happen is when an animal does get too close or a human, the porcupine quills are going to release and go into the body of its predator. And once in a while, prior to either having a porcupine come into contact with a predator as its last mechanism of defense, sometimes the quills are going to be released or they might drop out when a uh, porcupine shakes shakes its body. I looked for a video of that, but I couldn't find it. Uh, (laughs) But it's almost like the quills are really being released like prematurely. And so with that, people often had the notion that a porcupine can throw its quills. Like, oh, I see 
this predator coming at me. I'm going to shake my body and throw my quills at it like darts or something. Uh, but that is a myth. So we're, Chris and I are always here to bust myth. Porcupines are not able to quote unquote throw quills. In general, upon contact, they get released. Uh, and once in a while, they'll drop out on their own uh, if if the animal shakes and it's all upset. But yes, not able to throw them. So you can ask your friends at your next party. Or perhaps we can do a quiz on social media and see if everybody else, everybody knew that. Or you can quiz your friends and relatives that are in your and your bubbles that you're hanging out with. But uh, yeah, it's it's not true. They, they do not throw them. But it is true that they can obviously be pretty painful when they're stuck in a predator's body. And it's also important to note that the quills don't have any poison in them. Just the fact that it's sharp, hard to get out with the barbs, and there's probably multiple in the injured animal is enough to knock the animal on its bum for a while and potentially Mm -hmm. even kill it. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But Chris, I also found it was fascinating. Like, okay, yeah, they don't have any poison in their quills. In fact, they actually potentially have antibiotic. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Did you read that? Yeah. 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 And so researchers think that some of these antibiotic properties and uh, fatty acids that are coating the quills actually aid the porcupine itself in case it gets suffered from self-injury. Like if somehow it ends up poking itself, maybe during breeding, things like that. We were talking about. <laughs> I just still, I can't wait to get there because I have no clue. How but that yeah. Works. So yeah. So they're definitely, there's definitely no poison in them no, or anything no. like that. Uh, and in fact, if anything, there's antibiotic, which helps the porcupine out if there's a self-injury, but is not going to help um, a predator out. And it's, that's what they're for. They're, they're a defense mechanism. Right. And so, and they're not trying to, uh, they're not trying to use them as defense. In fact, when they feel threatened, uh, they have a lot of behaviors to warn the predator, Hey, stay away from me. Uh, they make little vocalizations. They'll rattle their tail, make hiss noises, uh, and of course they're quiz, they raise their quills regardless of the species to make themselves look much bigger. Right. Uh, and so then if that doesn't work, then yes, then they will launch themselves basically into the predator and they have been known to attack and kill oh, yeah. hyenas, lions. leopards, yeah. lions, things yeah. like that. I don't know about the honey badger. <laughs> he don't care. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, yeah, don't they, they they do a reverse charge where they'll charge because that's the thicker quills. Yeah. At yeah, the predator. They'll, they'll, yeah, place their tail or their hind end, the thicker quills, yeah. and just go for it, uh, yeah. which is crazy. And then if and when the quills come out and the predator, they grow back. Really quick, if I read. Mm-hmm. Like, really quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, no, I, and I've read that, you know, when those tips break off, it, they embed themselves like so the, the tip of the quill will break off because they, they break off easily. And anytime you move or contract muscles, that tip goes deeper and deeper and deeper and it can, you know, eventually get infected. But I, I did run across, you know, some, some literature out there as far as with lions is when lions do go after porcupines, it's usually young males because young males are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sorry, guys. <laughs> Thank you for we saying are. that. I was biting. <laughs> I was holding back my tongue. I was like, oh, just... you've got a house of four young. We'll, we'll throw John in there. Uh, young boys. Uh, we wild, uh, to say the least. we don't make the smartest decisions, and, and so, but the young male ones. I think as you mature. I met John. I met John in his thirties, and he was making very yeah. good decisions. Number one to date me, uh, yes, but yes. yeah, I always tease him. I'm like, if, I, if we would have met in our twenties, I'm like, no way. Yeah, I'm yeah. both parts. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, they do say the older lines don't mess with them because they know, right? But yes. th- the young ones do, and so they they will kill uh, young male lions. Then the other issue is injured lions due to porcupines are hampered and can't really hunt normal prey. So they turn to livestock and people. So in 1965, there was a pair of lions that were, were uh, killing people. And they found that they were, I think one of them had porcupine quills, like in one of its, its legs and stuff. And it just was in a lot of pain. So it went after something easy because hmm. it couldn't hunt. So yeah, that, you don't mess with the porcupines. I'm sorry. You just don't. You don't. I've seen pictures of dogs with like in their faces, just like, oh, oh, you just don't. You just don't. They're just uh, amazing creatures. Some other quick facts, you know, before we we jump into some more behavior. Uh, At the African crest, it can live up to 15 years in the wild, which isn't too bad for a rodent. Uh, 28 years under human care is what I saw. Yes, that's I mean, that's long for a rodent. Rodent. Yeah. Yeah. Very long. They can run at a blistering six miles per hour so i'm right there with you <laughs> they're not very fast oh wait no so, i can't even do that i'm like, <laughs> I'm like <laughs> six miles per hour is nothing you can outrun them easy uh swimming now swimming is the six mile per hour that's the fastest human um they're and like angie said their ears eyes are small long whiskers so the physiology was pretty much all with the quills like I said the, earlier, the, the herbivores, those those all-important bulbs they talk about, leaves, roots, they do eat some small vertebrates, maybe some insects. The interesting thing was they do eat some carrion sometimes to get calcium and, and uh, phosphorus and other minerals. They will gnaw on bones. And they find lots of bones in their dens, like yes. <laughs> the killer porcupine. <laughs> At first, I was like, "What is happening here? Why is this?" And and then, of course, the calcium makes some sense. But even more than the calcium from the bones, porcupines are rodents, so their keep mm-hmm. their teeth keep growing throughout their lives, like right, beavers. Right. We've covered. Beavers, oh, that's true right? too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And different, like naked mole rats, things like that. And so, researchers believe that the bones may also help them sharpen their incisors, wear their teeth down, things like that. And so it's like a, it's like a double whammy. So they're getting the calcium and they're gnawing, uh, not gnawing down their, their teeth, keeping their teeth at, right, at an appropriate right. sharp length, keep those incisors good for all, uh, for tearing and chewing and things like that. So pretty cool stuff. I, I, I thought it was pretty fascinating to find that yeah, they would find like all these bones in, in there. Yeah. And the underground dens. Yes. <laughs> it's like wild. Yeah. Who knew, right? Uh, right and then right, right. for keepers that work with them, I was reading that they also will provide them with a lot of enrichment as far as logs and sticks and just bark 
antlers um, to chew on to help keep their their teeth down. So pretty pretty cool stuff. And just to finalize some of the nutrition stuff, Angie, I know briefly mentioned it earlier that they were being poached for stomach contents because they have like a large appendix. So they, they do digest some of this fiber. So what are the, the bezoars or what are they being poached for? Yeah, Chris, this was also mind blowing to me this week. I had no idea uh, that in Asia, a lot of porcupines are being poached for these bezoars, um, which is just really pretty much a fancy word for uh, masses of undigested plant material that can be found in their gut. The demand is mostly in China, uh, where there's a common belief that these bezoars can help provide medicinal properties, cure cancer, diabetes, you name it. <laughs> always. But uh, a big, big note there's no scientific evidence whatsoever that any of a porcupine's stomach contents, these bezoars, have have any proven efficacy and usage as far as working for common ailments and or diseases. So it just seems like they're they keep looking for things because one like pangolin scales, something gets shut down. So let's go find something new. That has magical powers, you know. I know. I agree, Chris. It's crazy. But according to an article in National Geographic, the prices have just gone up for these these bezoars from porcupines um, in in the the Asian markets. So. Uh, I mean, it's even the, you know, go the vaquita porpoise. They're not, there's nothing with them that's medicinal, but it's the swim bladders of the the fish there that in the Gulf of California. Mm-hmm. So it's just all of these medicinal mythical animals. It's just, it's sad. It's really sad because with modern medicine, modern science, we should be able to debunk a lot of this, you know, with right. keratin and rhino horn and, and, you know, pangolin scales. And we do know we can, we can break these substances down, find I mean- out if they are medicinal <laughs> And this and then one, just, this one make just, them. I don't know. This one just really kind of doesn't make any sense if you think about it because it's just undigested like plant material in their gut, but you don't even know what plants they're eating. So right. it's it, whatever ingredient, let's say, potentially might help cancer or something. It's not consistent because different porcupines eat different things and have access Ferment to different, differently, different yeah. food. So it w- it's yeah. not like it's going to be stable from species to species. And uh, yeah, and it's just crazy um, because a, a lot of this is going under the radar. Like it's just not as, of course, we talk a lot about. Mo- of course, because we talk typically talk more about rhino horn and mm-hmm. and, and elephant tusks and things like that. Uh, but it, it, it's happening, and it's a big threat to the Philippine porcupine, the Asiatic brush-tailed porcupine, yeah. and the Malayan porcupine. Um, and they're all – their numbers are declining, and right yeah. now the IUCN is uh, declaring them threatened or declining in number mm-hmm, throughout mm-hmm. Southeast Asia. So, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, it's another species to keep our eyes on. But what are, besides the defensive behaviors we've talked about, what are some of the other cool stuff that they do? 
Well, as we mentioned, they're typically nocturnal, so we don't get to see them a lot. Uh, and they will forage for their plants or whatever they're eating. They'll forage uh, at night, typically alone. And they, they travel up to nine miles or so looking for food each evening. So that's that's a pretty good uh, good little hike, if you ask me. They're mostly terrestrial, so they're mostly on land. Once again, they don't really climb trees like they're uh, the New World counterparts. And they typically lay low during the day in burrows or dens. And African crested porcupines don't have a true hibernation period, uh, but they might slow down a little bit um, during the colder months, uh, depending on where they live. And in regards to their social life, the African crested porcupine is monogamous, so they mate for life. And they're pretty good parents, the moms especially, as far as how they care for their young. So they're going to hang out with their family groups, which will be the adult pair and their young, um, maybe from one or two litters, so infants and juveniles. And they'll often develop a elaborate den or burrow that will house the whole family group. That's mate for life with a rodent. That's that's fascinating. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. 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 I, yeah. And then, of course, as we mentioned, as a defense mechanism, they're going to raise their quills if they're really upset, but they'll also clatter their teeth during this as a, as a warning sign. Like, hey, like, don't, you know, this is be, you know, be warned. <laughs> and And that, along with their rattling tail sound, is should be enough to scare off most predators. And then if not, they'll get bigger and launch their hind ends into them if need be. Yeah. 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 No, thanks. And also as probably another defense mechanism, the African crested porcupine will emit an odor when it's upset. Um, And this, the smell usually comes when it has its quills fully erect. So once again, telling, trying to tell the predator like, back off and hope yeah. that they're smart. They listen, right? Yeah. 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 Associate that smell with that. And I definitely don't want to mess with a porcupine. And so I really want to get to this section. How do they give birth to these things without <laughs> killing themselves? How do they even very, mate? Very, very carefully, Chris. Because that is a <laughs> lot of quills pointed to the rear of that female. And how we normally see animals mating, that is not very inviting. Yes. Well, you <laughs> and I were both think alike. <laughs> yes. Reproduction. Um, yeah. I'm like, woo. Uh, but yes, the answer is very, very, very carefully for the most part. And so uh, I'm just thinking about it. Maybe I'm like, maybe that's why they're they're monogamous. Like once the partners figure each other out, they're like, okay, we're not. We're not going to, I'm not, I'm not getting to know a new set of quills. Forget about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, But no, all jokes aside, uh, for African crested porcupines, there's not really a lot known about their breeding behavior in general in the wild, but they do live under human care. And so they have been observed um, via camera, nocturnal cameras and things like that. And so, and so what researchers have learned is when it is mating time, the female will raise her tail, not the quills, right? The quills are down, so that's helpful. But she'll raise her tail. However, Chris, the male is very, very careful 
And <laughs> I would hope so. I would hope so. <laughs> he well, but uh, strategically, he doesn't place yeah. any weight onto the female. He stands there like a gentleman and is not like lean forward, put bearing any weight or any part of his body really onto the female, like we'll see with other species. Now, keep in mind too that breeding only occurs at night, so it's hard for researchers to really to really study. Um, but they have observed it inside and outside of the burrow, and there's multiple breeding sessions. All right, so I could see him, I, and I get it. We don't quite get all the the physiology, and there's a lot of jokes in there. But I'll I'll leave it to people's imaginations. It's just very carefully. I guess the important thing too is like. You know, she'd be an estrus, but like, how? Uh, any courtship behaviors, like getting her ready, because I, I get the the quills are down, so she's not actively trying to kill him. Hopefully, you know, especially if they're monogamous, so she knows the male. But yeah. he's got to butter her up a little bit, right, to get her. You know. Well, what we can tell for now with the African crested porcupines is it's thought that they do breed throughout the year. Um, however, this is usually in a uh, captive setting too. So it might be a little bit different in the wild, but it's thought that the estrus period is 35 days. And when she, uh, when she is an estrus there, I'm sure there is a courtship behavior. It just hasn't really been recorded. And Chris, I, I'm sure there's some courtship behaviors that will happen when the female is showing sign that she's ready when she is in high estrogen, right? And probably some of that's like her moving her tail to the side and, think, and accepting the male and things like that. But with African crested porcupines, we don't really know of any specific or super unique uh, courtship behavior. However, Chris, in other species of porcupine, uh, Courtship will consist of two males fighting over a female, which that's, I get that. Uh, And then the winner will urinate on the female so she (laughs) knows it's time to move her tail aside for quill-free mating. Okay. (laughs) Don't try this at home, Mm -hmm. I guess. (laughs) So now that hasn't, that urinating behavior has not been reported to my knowledge in the African crested, but it has been reported in other species of porcupine. Okay. So, I mean, who's going to be the young researcher that figures it out? I, hopefully. (laughs) Somebody listening. Hopefully they're out there. Yes, exactly. And then that leads to how these things are born without (laughs) puncturing you know, the, the uterus and everything coming out the birth canal. Yeah, it's nuts, right? And so the African crested porcupine, her gestation period is about 112 days. And during this time, she'll make a nice den. Uh, she'll line it with grass. It's usually separate from other family members. And, and yes, she'll give birth to typically one litter per year. And these one, two, I guess there can be four offspring are called porcupets, which is just charming and lovely. Mm-hmm. So little mm-hmm. porcupets. And I sent you a picture of Yes, adorable. Of one. Very oh adorable. Uh, and so uh, she'll give birth to them and they're pretty small at birth. So they're going to weigh about a thousand grams or two and a half pounds. But when you consider her weight, it's about only three to five percent of her weight, so they're they're pretty small. 
And the way that she's able to do this without injuring herself is, yes, the the, the porcupets do have quills, okay, or these spines, but their body's covered with short hair for the most part, and whatever spines are there are still really soft. Okay. So okay. it's and, – and I, I gave birth to – Two sons that had a lot of hair. Yeah. <laughs> they almost look like they have two pays on. They're so cute. Yes, yes, yes. And yes, I will tell you that the hair on their head was not the problem. No. <laughs> For me. It was the circumference of their head that was. Yeah. <laughs> that was, was what I yeah. remembered. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, oh, to answer the question is they're not pointy and hard and thick. Okay. However. It doesn't take long before the spines, I mean, really after like a week, the spines okay. begin to harden up and become the normal thick quills, pointy quills that you would not want to give birth to. Right. Uh, and they're they're in a, a den, so they're safe. And uh, a, a maneuvering down there must not be fun for porcupines. Yeah. It's like stay to the right when they're passing <laughs> yeah. each other in the tunnel. Stay to the right. Oh gosh! I know it's just so fascinating. Yeah. Well, and that's why they probably have antibiotic on on the tips mm-hmm. of the, of the quills, so they because yeah. I'm sure there are they do brush against each other. I mean, I just think of my two injured, boys yeah. wrestling with each other, like sibling rivalry, and like <laughs> I'm like quills yeah. everywhere. Yeah. The, I was gonna say that probably doesn't happen in that in uh, in a porcupine's uh, in, in family and her, her uh, family. So, but yeah. but yeah, the the young become pretty independent quickly they'll start eating solid foods after two or three weeks um and they're just they're just cute uh chris will put up a picture of a a baby african crusted porcupine on the show notes and they're just darling they look like they have really bad hair it's amazing yeah they're they're quills so super cute and then they hang out with the parents um for several months and then we'll even even stay with the family base up you know up into the next breeding season right and uh, individuals will reach an, their adult weight at about one to two years, and that's when they typically will reach sexual maturity and go s- start their own family. Yeah, yeah, it's, they're really cool. I mean, fun to talk about. We, we've talked about the conservation, least concern for them, the the African crested and capes, but there are organizations like working with porcupines, right? I mean, there just isn't a ton, but. Sure. Well, I mean, keep in mind that um, the Philippine and the bristle spine porcupine are a couple species that are are threatened right now, the Malayan. But focusing more specifically on the African crested porcupine, who does experience human wildlife conflict, they can be targeted for their quills as well, is the African Wildlife Foundation, uh, which can be found at www.awf.org. Chris will put the website up on our show notes. And we've highlighted the African Wildlife Foundation before um, because the African crested is found in more than 30 countries in Africa. And so they need solutions on how people can work with them and not poach them to make sure that they continue to be least concerned and not endangered. And so one of the ways African Wildlife Foundation does this is by providing education to communities about um, growth as far as growing their agricultural land and growing uh, these more rural areas into urban areas and how to properly do that based on best practices for pretty much all wildlife. 
And the African Wildlife Foundation will set aside land for wildlife. And so they partner up with different regions and communities and basically try to decide which land is the best to conserve and protect, including the African crested porcupine. No, it's amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Fun species. Yeah, yeah. just look at the pictures this week. It's yeah. incredible. I mean, maybe Chris yeah. and I are extra dorky, which we all know that we are. And, <laughs> and we're okay with that. But yeah, yeah they're just, I don't know. I, for me, it was a species that was really under my radar until Pax brought it up. And then you, of course, were like, yes, I've been wanting to do this for a while. And yeah, yeah I got really excited about this week. And so hopefully our listeners will too. No, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for listening and uh, stay tuned. We'll be back next week with a new species. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.